It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. This episode of the Gabfest contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for September 3rd, 2020, the Who Should Get the Vaccine edition. I am David Plotz, no longer a business insider. I'm about to start something new, but not quite ready to say what that is. But I'm a free agent at the moment. Only if you're a business insider do you know David's business. uh, In any case, I'm merely David Plotz. That second voice you heard was John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes. Hello, John Dickerson. Hello, hello. Good to be with you, David Plotz, no longer of Business Insider. And that first voice you heard was Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hello, Emily. Hello, hello. I'm glad to be here with you. Feels like a normal day. Emily's in New Haven, but she's wearing a Philly t-shirt. Yes, which my youngest sister, Dana, gave me, which I really like wearing. On today's GabFest, the unrest in Kenosha and Portland and elsewhere, death in the streets, murder in the streets, President Trump fanning and promoting violence. What is going on? What is to be done about this? Then the president seems to be preparing to release a vaccine before Election Day, whether or not it is ready. We will talk to Zeke Emanuel, leading scientist, ethicist about the prospect of an early vaccine and then who should get that vaccine and when they should get that vaccine. And then Ed Ball has written a fascinating book about an ancestor of his, an early member of the KKK, a book that tells us a huge amount about the power and nature and persistence of white supremacy in the U.S. We will talk to him. And dear GabFest listeners, we have a live show. We're going to have a live show on Wednesday, the 16th of September at 7 p.m., so in about two weeks, 7 p.m. Eastern time with Uh, The Texas Tribune Festival, our dear friends down in Austin who put on an amazing festival. This year it'll be a more virtual festival, and we will be doing a live show in partnership with them. You can go to slate.com slash live to get information. Tickets are free, and you you can join us on the stream on Wednesday, September 16th at 7 p.m. The streets of American cities are in many ways far safer than they were a generation ago. And yet we have a president who is staking his election on creating anxiety about urban unrest. President Trump is running a law and order campaign, yet he is a president who warps the law and thrives on disorder. So there's an irony in that. Uh, Kyle Rittenhouse has been charged with the killing of two in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Meanwhile, a protester with ties to militia alt-right movement seems to seems to have ties to the movement was killed in portland so emily i've been away for a couple of days and just come back into this sort of maelstrom and this sort of deep anxiety what is happening that is causing so much stress and conflict in cities or in a a handful of cities i mean The police shooting Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin, touched off this particular round. 
And there were protests, and some of the protests included looting, um, which, you know, creates its own feeling of disorder in a city and is destructive. But I think the ingredient that is so hard to grapple with because it's not how leadership normally works is that President Trump is essentially trying to ignite more violence and chaos, it seems, refusing to denounce or really distance himself from Kyle Rittenhouse, who um, shot three people and killed two, you know, someone from outside Kenosha who came in like in this sort of local militia way to supposedly defend property, which of course was not his, and this ended in this tragedy. And you just have this feeling that President Trump and his enormous federal power, the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Justice, are kind of teed up to try to spark more chaos and unrest because Trump thinks this is his route to re-election, that even though this is happening on his watch, he can attribute it to Democrats and blame Democratic-run cities for the problems that we're seeing on TV. And it's almost as if the images themselves will be so powerful, they will just catapult Trump to victory, no matter what the origins of them are, that people will not realize that he is a kind of causal agent at this point. I can't really tell if this strategy is working. I mean, it it kind of seems like it should work when you look at the history of American politics and the way in which previous Republican presidents have run on these. I'm going to put law and order in asterisks because I don't really think it's law and order. You know, in fact, Mitt Romney and John McCain, who distanced themselves from this kind of rhetoric, they're the Republicans who lost the presidential campaigns that they ran in. So I, it feels like it should be working. And yet, so far, it doesn't seem from the polls like we really see that yet. John, is, is that what you think? Or do you think something else? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think the second part is um, unknowable and uns- uncertain. But everything you say is right. In 1968, 1972, 1980, and I think implicitly in 84, it was the law and order message and but the suburbs were quite different and you know the suburbs were an enclave built to keep people of color out they're much more diverse now and the people who live there are and particularly those college educated men and women who are some of the most sought after voters are uh, more evolved on issues and questions of race even the whites in those areas are much more evolved on the questions of race and uh, and also implicit racism and recognize the the dog whistles which are no longer dog whistles because of the pre- when the president says Cory Booker is going to be in charge of suburban housing that's not a dog whistle. Um, Can we just say how weird it is to imagine Cory Booker as like fomenting any kind of chaos? I mean, he's a most gentle sort of like orderly seeming politician, right? Well, he's not like a fire breathing guy. Well, that's what gives up the game. There is nothing in inherently threatening about Cory Booker other than if you are apt to see it this way, his skin color. And I was surprised that this didn't get the coverage it did, but then this is, I mean, the president in making his case for why the Obama era um, policies with respect to housing in the suburbs were a bad idea. The fact that he used to support his case, which is rare because he doesn't often use facts to support his case because it's all assertion, was that 30% of the population in the suburbs were minorities. He used that as if it were, on its face, a scary figure. I mean, what does Elaine Chow say about that? She, They undoubtedly have a house in the suburbs. She's a minority. Like, it's an extraordinary thing for an American president to say that the presence of minorities, too many of them in the suburbs, is a sign of danger. Um, whether it's effective or not, it doesn't appear to be 
changing the polls at the moment. There were a whole slew of them out this week that show the race maybe a little bit tightening, but 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 Trump's approval rating is still bad. Law and order has not climbed um, in the in the way people think about what's important to them in the election. However, one big thing that has climbed, I mean, it is in the top five. It wasn't in 2016. Just one other note, terrorism, which was in the top three, I think, in 2016, is not even in the top seven, I think, this time around. That's just kind of a side note. Uh, but I'll, I'll stop talking. But I would say just one final thing, because this is what I am contractually obligated to say. The president's job is to, in general, lessen chaos, calm things down. And he's not only not calming things down. He's fomenting chaos, and not for the purposes of healing the country, but for his political health. So to the extent that it's been a constant question of whether President Trump does things only for his personal self-interest and not for the obligations of the office, this would be another thing in that category. So one of the things that's really disturbed me, Emily, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, is the conflict between the Second Amendment and the First Amendment in this moment, which is that the second amendment so we have what we have that is that is so dangerous i think is open carry coming in conflict with first amendment right to free speech and assembly when those two things come in conflict it's incredibly dangerous and second amendment squashes the first amendment that essentially you cannot have free speech you cannot have free assembly when there are guns around and open carry laws and the ability of, of almost anyone in this country in 41 states, I think, to walk around with a loaded weapon uh, and brandish that weapon in a way or carry that weapon in a way that, that feels threatening, even if the person carrying the gun has no ill intent. And I, I genuinely believe that for the most part, people don't have ill intent when they're carrying their gun. I think they have their intent is they in their own mind is peaceful and and, but it is in itself a suppressant to speech and uh, something which is which is also in, intrinsically dangerous, as we've seen in now in, in two different cities. And I, I, as a constitutional issue, obviously, like, you know, we're we're going to have guns in this country and we're going to have free speech in this country. But it's it is they are very bad combination. Well, there's sort of an strange history here. A lot of gun control laws concern concealed carry. Open carry, I gather from just a little bit of reading, isn't really addressed in these 41 states because like people didn't do it. It was not seen as like the way that you were going to go around carry your gun. Like you were supposed to be having your gun so that you could surprise someone or it was like on your person in some way that it was um, reassuring to you. But the idea that people are going to be displaying guns openly doesn't seem to be a part of the regulatory history of weapons in the, since the 60s when this gun control legislation, or our current wave of gun control legislation started. Um so that's just this curious fact that in the context of these protests, people are carrying guns openly. The whole point is to have it openly. And the legal structure, the restrictions we have are not really well um, designed to deal with them. I mean, in a lot of states, you can open carry a gun right up on, onto your state capitol grounds. Like, they're, it's just really unrestricted. John, are you no, wrong? Uh, I, no, you're, I just— I'm, You're right. <laughs> I want to ask you a legal question. Is there, because um, I think David's point is really interesting. Uh, 
Is there a legal um, doctrine that governs this idea, which is to say I'm speaking on a street corner. Surely if somebody pointed a gun in my face, that would we'd, we'd agree that that would chill my speech. Right. If it was pointed directly at me. But what how far away can they be? before it stops chilling my speech? Does it just mean they're not pointing the gun at me? You know, what? what's the ruling on this? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think that unless you can charge someone for inciting violence, right, or a direct threat, a true threat is like a direct threat to yeah. do bodily injury or kill someone, I'm not even sure that pointing would accomplish it. Although brandishing a gun is a crime separate from the free speech context, I think, in every state. You're not supposed to go around brandishing weapons, so maybe that would cover I think it. pointing is a problem. I think I want to point to one other aspect of, of this that is so troublesome, which is that also the presence of heavily armed people makes the police act crazy. Yes, that's it, yes. I think that's a key part of this. It changes the whole dynamic with the police because the police sort of understandably can't be as forceful in doing their jobs. And it means that they're treating the people with guns often with much more deference than the people who don't have guns, which is means that the peaceful protesters are the ones who are more likely to get kind of pushed around. And that seems like the opposite uh, dynamic we'd want in terms of encouraging peaceful protests. Yes. In the end, if you encourage very emotional people to bring guns to demonstrations, you're going to have violence on both sides. Like, that is really terrifying. It's not going to get confined. So I think that's another just frightening dynamic in all of this. You can't control which way the politics are going to go. John, one thing before we leave this topic, there was this push this week for Joe Biden to have a sister soldier moment. And what does that mean? And do you think that's a that's a disingenuous uh, thing, or do you think that's actually politically important for him to to do something uh, to denounce the demonstrators who have made such important and eloquent and critical points about what's going on in this country regarding race and criminal justice? Well, the sister soldier moment refers back to something Bill Clinton said in 1992 about rapper, hip-hop artist, whichever you want to call her, and who is also a political activist, Sister Soldier. Um, and Clinton was critical of her, and it was perceived that this was a, a, an element in his successful um, rebranding and recasting of himself as a centrist Democrat, as a new kind of Democrat, not beholden to the same kind of liberal coalition that that supported Jimmy Carter and Jesse Jackson that he was and this has come to now represent a kind of um, uh, ascending on the backs of the black community to the presidency in its, you know, in in its um, harshest form. So it's come to mean something different than it originally meant. Um, and And when Clinton did this, he was criticized by Jesse Jackson, which kind of furthered this idea that he was distant from the traditional urban Democrat. And it worked in, in the same kind of, when you see what um, uh, Donald Trump is trying to do with Joe Biden, which is saying he's a Trojan horse, he's, a, you know, he's got a Trotskyite hidden under his cloak. Um, this is in theory what Clinton guarded against, which is you can't say he's beholden to Jesse Jackson if Jesse Jackson's criticizing him. Okay, flash forward to today. Two problems. One, there's not evidence 
there was no evidence in the polls that Biden had a real weakness. There was evidence that they spent four days at the Democratic at the Republican convention saying he was captive to these socialist um, pro-violence elements in American culture. But there was no evidence that that was having any purchase with voters. Indeed, subsequent to that, there have been polls that show, including a Fox poll of Wisconsin, which shows actually Biden is doing better than Trump on the questions of, of violence in cities. Now, that's a single poll, but there's a big dispute about whether this was a problem that needed fixing. Having said that, Biden gave a speech Monday in which he basically said, and I thought this was interesting, he, he basically said, you know, what he has been saying about the violence, that there's no... Um, there's no excuse for it, and those who are committing violence should be um, prosecuted. So this was in response to this notion, but he made it a much broader um, attack on Trump, and basically the argument is he sows chaos wherever he is and whatever he does, whether it's with respect to race or COVID-19, he makes it worse. Um, so what I wonder at the end of this campaign, we will say is to the extent that that was his, Joe Biden's response to this problem for which people were prescribing a sister soldier moment. A, did, was it really necessary? But B, even if it wasn't necessary, in the end, does Joe Biden, having given the speech he gave on Monday, which was essentially a reiteration of what he'd said before, did that have a beneficial effect? And we're basically talking about an audience here of like 70,000 suburban voters in about four states. I mean, it was quite a contrast with with President Trump, who I think Jamel Bowie, our beloved guest, wrote a column this week that it's Trump who needs to have a sister soldier moment. He's the one who's been encouraging violence. Um, and so to me, the the difference in rhetoric was really striking. And then you saw Trump's visit to Kenosha, which was all about standing against a backdrop of burned buildings. And Biden's on his way there on Thursday, I think, to meet with the family of Jacob Blake and presumably have a, a visit that's more about amelioration and compassion and bringing people together. I see a through line all the way back to Charlottesville. If you look at the bulk of, if you look at everything the president said about Charlottesville, his most consistent passion was in pointing out that both sides were involved in the violence. And so in an instance where you have white supremacists and neo-Nazis in fights with protesters, he insisted that there were protesters uh, who were protesting against the white supremacists who were involved in violence. That was his most consistent um, passion in, in all of his remarks. So there was a real asymmetry of concern. Instead of being concerned about the fact that you had white supremacists marching, he was more concerned that people recognized that those protesting against the white supremacists were engaged in violence. In this instance, he has refused to acknowledge that there is anything other than his protesters and anything other than violence. And that asymmetry has been consistent throughout his um, presidency. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts and all sorts of other excellent additives from Slate. Uh, your Slate Plus membership really helps Slate do the great journalism it's been able to do in this election year, during this pandemic, during the uh, summer of, of protests. And I would encourage you to become a Slate Plus member. Consider becoming a member. Just $35 for the first year if that's something that uh, that lights lights you up. So please go to slate.com slash GabFest plus to become a member today. Our bonus segment today on the GabFest, we're going to talk about whether when we look back in 30 years, 
will the 2020 election, in fact, have been the most important election of our lifetimes? So go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to get those bonus segments today. The CDC has told health authorities around the country to prepare for a vaccine, a vaccine that will come before the election in October, early November, when a vaccine or several vaccines or two vaccines that seem to be uh, the subject of CD, the CDC advice, even if those vaccines are safe and effective, there won't be enough to get enough of it to everyone immediately. It's going to take time. So there are all sorts of important questions about how to allocate that vaccine when it comes. We're joined today by Zeke Emanuel. He's the vice provost for global initiatives and chair of the Department of Medical Ethics and Health Policy at University of Pennsylvania. He's a leading medical ethicist and scientist, and he's been doing a lot of thinking about vaccines and about the allocation, the fair allocation of vaccines. He is one of the authors of a new article in Science today about the FAIR priority model, which is a protocol that he and his co-authors have developed for for distributing the vaccine in a just way. So, Zeke, let's start with the question about the rapid availability, the possible rapid availability of a vaccine here in the U.S. Is it good news or bad news that the Trump administration appears to be preparing to release a vaccine to at least some people before the election? Well, I don't know whether it's good news or bad news. That will all depend upon the data. And presumably this study of uh, vaccine effectiveness is double blind. So I have no idea uh, how they know any results. No one should know any results because they don't know who's gotten the real vaccine and who's gotten the not real COVID vaccine. And so I don't have any idea how they think they have advanced knowledge. There are data uh, safety monitoring boards to look at the preliminary data um, and to decide whether, in fact, there's enough evidence uh, to cancel the trial early uh, because it's either so effective uh, that there's no or very low chance that it's by, you know, a coincidence or it's not effective and people are being harmed and there's no chance it will be approved. As far as I know, those data safety monitoring boards haven't met. So it's a little suspicious uh, about what they're going to rush through. And that the fact that it's not based upon science, and we've already seen uh, how pliable the FDA has been, uh, it's a little worrisome. Right. Yes. The idea that we can't rely on the CDC and the FDA for kind of basic, reliable, data-driven scientific thinking right now is really um, overwhelming. Uh, It's just (laughs) been such an important... We we have agencies and we have agency staff with good uh, uh, people in them for a reason. Uh, They are all headed by political appointees. Uh, But those political appointees are supposed to be accountable to the American public and to the Senate, and they are supposed to uh, adhere to certain core mission and values. And one of the CDC's core mission and values laid down more almost 60 years ago is about protecting the American public when it comes to drugs and vaccines and devices that the, the ones released are safe and effective. And you just worry that uh, in this case, politics is going to, you know, forget that mission. So I'm going to turn us to this really interesting paper. 
you and your co-authors are imagining a world of fair and equitable vaccine distribution across countries. Um, You address what you call vaccine nationalism, which once I read the phrase, I thought like, oh, of course, like this, I would assume that the countries that are the wealthiest that make the vaccine, the countries we see racing, the United States, Russia, China, some version of the EU or the UK are going to then hog the vaccine for their own people first. And you're imagining a different model in which we kind of phase a rollout of the vaccine internationally. And I wonder if you just want to lay out how that would work and why you think it's important. Well, first of all, Emily, we don't imagine that world. There is an international uh, setup uh, called the COVAX facility, Uh, set up by the WHO, the World Health Organization, Gavi, which distributes vaccines to low- and middle-income countries, and CEPI, uh, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations. They have pledged to distribute the vaccine fairly and equitably. Some vaccine manufacturers themselves, like AstraZeneca and recently uh, the CEO of Eli Lilly, have said that they're pledging to distribute it uh, broadly and equitably. Uh, And some countries, leaders of countries, like uh, led by Justin Trudeau of Canada, New Zealand's prime minister, they've pledged to distribute the vaccine fairly and equitably. The problem that we were addressing is, what does fairly and equitably mean if you're going to distribute it among countries? Because literally, there's not been one paper, one white paper, one report that has answered that in any substantial or concrete way. And so we thought that was a challenge that ethicists, political scientists, public health people are perfectly situated to address. And we identified three core values that ought to be uh, realized. We then said, well, what does that mean in terms of, you know, the top priorities? We said that the top priority should be limiting the number of deaths and premature deaths in particular. Second, once that's Uh, moderately well accomplished, we should move on to rectifying economic and social deprivations, poverty, unemployment, school closures. And finally, you get to returning to normalcy and herd immunity. And that gives you very concrete guidance as to how to distribute the vaccine among countries. Zeke, hasn't the Trump administration already said or said this week that they won't participate in in an international distribution of the vaccine, that it essentially is practicing the the vaccine nationalism you were talking about? Uh, unfortunately, yes. A couple of days ago, they said we're not participating in COVAX, which I think is short-sighted because it may be that the United States doesn't produce a first, second, third, fourth uh, effective vaccine, that maybe it's Russia or maybe it's China or maybe it's, you know, uh, the UK, uh, France. Uh, but we should also be fair uh, vaccine nationalism is a common problem. Sanofi is the French drug, large French drug, international drug company. Uh, you know, when Sanofi several months ago suggested that the United States, because they were supporting the COVAX vaccine development they were doing, was going to send vaccine to the United States, the French public went <laughs> up in arms uh, and the French government said, oh, no, 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 we're going to straighten this out and, and France is going to definitely get top priority. So I think this is a natural reaction. Part of what our paper did is to say, look, we understand vaccine nationalism, and maybe there's even a good ethical justification for it because governments have a responsibility to promote the freedom and well-being of their citizens, and this is a key element of freedom and well-being of citizens. But there's a limit to, to nationalism that you can have in this context, and that limit is you can't hoard 
more vaccine than is necessary to keep your transmission rate below one. Each individual, they transmit to one or fewer people so that the uh, virus in the end dies out. And that is a very important principle. Vaccine nationalism, national priority is not absolute. It's a relative thing. And once you get past a certain point, you you really are morally obliged to release vaccine. And I think this will motivate some countries. It'll motivate vaccine manufacturers as to how to distribute their vaccine. What these groups have lacked is a, co- a comprehensive understanding of what they should do to be fair. And that's our goal was to give them that understanding. Zeke, one thing I, I think that would be helpful for listeners to understand, and I speak for myself here, is could you explain to us right now, how does it work? There's a, a company makes a bunch of vaccine. How does it get distributed and how how is the decision made, Let's even within the United States, about who gets that vaccine? Who's to, who decides, like, no, that dose can go to you and not you? Uh, well, in the United States, it's pretty haphazard. Right now, the National Academy of Science, Engineering, and Medicine has a task force that is establishing it for the United States. They just released their report for a public comment. Other countries have different distributions. Many countries created a distribution formula or procedure based upon influenza, a potential influenza pandemic. And typically, these priorities within a country, and I want to emphasize it's within a country, the same ethical principles apply, but within a country, you have a slightly different principle. You typically look at who's at highest risk, uh, how do you slow down deaths and transmission, and the CDC has suggested, and the preliminary National Academy report is, you know, healthcare workers, first responders at the top, elderly people, uh, people at uh, who have uh, um, health conditions and diseases that put them at significant risk of death from uh, COVID or uh, serious complications. That priority, it you know, a lot of people agree with some of that. Uh, I, I will say where I agree and disagree in a second. But there's a problem even with that list, which is if you read the fine print of the National Academy report, it turns out that among the 330 million Americans, 193 million Americans have a condition or disease that puts them at significantly high risk for a complication or death from COVID. That's not you know, allocating a scarce resource if you give it to 109, have to give it to 193 million people. And that's in tier one. Forget getting to tier two. Th- there needs to be more refinement within that. Can I, actually, can I interrupt you before you get to your yeah. next point on that? So let's say it wasn't 193 million. Let's say it was only 20 million in that, like, for the sake of argument. Are they, is the idea also that those 20 million people get a phone call? No, they don't get a phone call. Uh, typically, the CDC sets the rules, as it were, and then you've got state agencies which are going to distribute to local areas. And I think, David, you're getting to a very, very good point, which is how are they going to know whether this person has emphysema or this person is sufficiently obese or this person has diabetes that they should be on the priority list? Getting to have frontline healthcare workers, okay, that's an institutional issue. You you give it to hospitals and, and other, you know, uh, federally qualified health plans. Uh, you know, th- there we have a, a system that can work. But giving it to people at significantly high risk, 
that's a complication. How, how do you know? Presumably, you'll go through their doctor and their medical record. Let's just say that's not the most efficient system ever invented. And uh, I think the operations here, the operational complexity here is something that uh, hasn't been well worked out. When we developed the uh, H1N1 distribution, frontline healthcare workers were up there, but children and you know, age is a lot easier to determine. Uh, uh, you can, you know, go to schools. You, th- there are a lot uh, easier ways of determining something like age than something like you have a comorbid health condition. I will say one of the things I do disagree with the National Academy report on is they give priority to people who've participated in the research on vaccines. And I think that's wrong. Now, there is a good ethical principle called reciprocity. You know, people who have sacrifice ought to be compensated for that sacrifice. And people who participate in in research, I generally think, ought to be compensated for that participation. Social good comes from it. But in public health emergencies, I have argued that reciprocity shouldn't actually be a factor. And furthermore, we know that the enrollment in these clinical trials has not fully reflected the American population. In particular, it hasn't reflected minorities. And so you are going to exacerbate the disparities of COVID if you give priority to the people who've enrolled in the trial. You're not actually going to compensate the disadvantaged in our population, which I think is a moral principle that has to operate. One of the moral principles that we think is important for distributing a vaccine is to rectify disadvantage, not to exacerbate it. And I think putting in reciprocity for participating in a clinical trial where the clinical trials aren't reflecting the population is uh, magnifying this advantage, not rectifying the disadvantage uh, that minorities are experiencing from COVID. So one thing that I was really interested in in this paper is the reliance on preventing premature death. And the way you talk about that is through a measure called standard expected years of life lost. So instead of just treating each life as equal, years of life loss gives more priority to people who are going to lose more years, i.e. usually younger people. How would that change how the vaccine is distributed internationally? Would it give more vaccine earlier to countries with younger populations? And then I know that you said that the decisions internally in a country are different, but if we use the same expected years of life lost as one of our factors for distributing vaccines in the United States, wouldn't that really change the order that you were laying out before where elderly people, because they're more at risk, get vaccine earlier? Uh, That was a lot. Sorry. That's multiple questions, but let me just say, So let's look internally in the United States. If you look among whites, 13% of uh, deaths among whites occur in people under 65. Uh, If you look among minorities, 30% of deaths among minorities occur in people under 65. And these are coronavirus deaths we're talking about, right? Yeah, COVID deaths, exactly. So if you distribute a vaccine and if you calculate, you know, here are the people at highest risk, and you use a 65-year-old cutoff, you are, per force, going to be, you know, disadvantaging minorities. You're going to be advantaging whites. And you're going to be, again, re-emphasizing the disparities in the healthcare system. Similarly, if you take it internationally, and you use the same principles we're 
being, that are being proposed for the United States, healthcare workers and older workers and, and older individuals, which countries in the world have more healthcare workers and more people over 65? Rich developed countries. It's not Ethiopia or Niger or South Africa that has more healthcare workers and more people over 65. They have younger populations. They have fewer healthcare workers because they're disadvantaged countries. So if you use healthcare workers and older population, you again are magnifying disadvantage, not rectifying disadvantage. When we use standard expected years of life lost, that has the same standard for every country in the world. It looks at life lost in every country as equal and it asks the question, it, it, it tries to rectify for this disadvantage that you're, you die younger in lots of low-income countries. And we try to rectify for that disadvantage. One of the primary principles of global health for many years has been not only let's reduce harm and benefit people, but also let's compensate people for disadvantage that is unjustified. That means that people who have been disadvantaged for a long time because they happen to be born into a low-income country through no fault of their own, or their country has you know, suffered badly, they should be uh, uh, at the top of the priority list, not, at the, not in a way uh, at the bottom of the priority list. This will be the last question, Zeke. Okay. Uh, Zeke, I've got a 19-part question. Um, <laughs> hey, so, you making fun uh, of me? No, 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 no. He was making fun of me. No, no, no. I was like, I only get one more question, so I'm just going to throw it all in right there. No, that was my that was my point. It's like I've got one more question, and I've got a I've got a sheet full of things here I want to ask him. Anyway, okay, thinking of America for the moment, where would you tell us to look if we're trying to think about the role a president would play in vaccine distribution? Does it happen before uh, inauguration in January or re-inauguration? Or does it have an a- happen afterwards? And therefore, should we put that into our thinking as we think about which president is going to be involved? Or you might say, actually, they're not that involved, and that's a safety in the system. Secondly, the, the well, can I answer the first question? About, because it's a complicated question. Okay, we're we'll, all, we'll just make that the question. We're already behind in terms of thinking about the distribution of a vaccine. Say in October or November, uh, the FDA says, we've got this safe and effective vaccine, um, and we've got, you know, call it 50 million doses, and now we have to get it out to the country. There are a lot of potential bottlenecks and hurdles in getting it out to the country. Let me just, first of all, you have to actually put it in glass vials with a stopper, and you have to put that in in super sterile conditions, 100 times more sterile than a hospital operating room. Every single thing, the glass vials, super sterile conditions to uh, load the vaccine in, and stoppers are in short supply. You need presidential leadership to make sure that uh, we can produce enough. And that is not something that can start today. It should have started a long time ago in March, but unfortunately, this president has shown that he's not very good at managing things. Everything that needs to be managed, he gives to Jared, and Jared showed you how good he is at managing uh, testing. Second, you then need needles and syringes, hundreds of millions. We're going to need close to a billion needles and syringes. That needs production, and there aren't that many companies that can produce it. So you need to add lines. You need to now 
invest in building facilities. Then you need to distribute it and make sure we have enough people to vaccinate hundreds of millions of Americans. All of this is a big challenge, and every one of these could hold up uh, vaccinating enough of the population for herd immunity. And a president has to appoint people, give them responsibility, back them up when there are problems and conflicts of authority, make sure they have enough money to sign the right contracts with these producers. And, you know, here we are in September. This is stuff that that really needed to be started a while ago. Ah, episode number 840 million in How America is Screwed. <laughs> well, what's what's crazy, can, can, can I just say, what's crazy is this is a management logistics problem. And if there is a country in the world that has lots of management and logistics expertise in the military, at Amazon, in lots of other businesses, UPS, FedEx, it's the United States. The fact that we can't manage this just shows you that we don't have a president who knows how to tap in to the most uh, expertise in the United States. And that is the real tragedy here. Zeke Emanuel, thank you so much for joining the GabFest. We will talk to you again soon, I hope. Thank you. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We are joined now by Edward Ball. He's the author of Life of a Klansman, A Family History in White Supremacy, a very beautiful and troubling book about his great great grandfather maybe it's great 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 i'm now lost track either two or three great great grandfathers back constant le corne or constant le corne or constant le corne you're going to give us a good pronunciation in a second edward a not very successful carpenter in new orleans in the mid-19th century who fought for the confederacy then joined the embryonic white supremacy terror movement that seized post-war america the ku klux klan and it is an extraordinary story about how ordinary 
white supremacy is in American life. I want to start, Edward, with an amazing statistic, which I'm sure comes up in every time you talk about this. You did a little basic math to show that probably half of all white Americans have an ancestor who was in the Klan. So talk us through that, and what is the significance of that mathematical fact, and then we'll get more into what your book is. Yeah, probably 135 million Americans have an ancestor somewhere in their family tree who was a member of the Ku Klux Klan movement at some point. During the 1920s, the second wave of the Ku Klux Klan had about four to five million adherents, dues-paying members. And if you count forward 100 years, 1925 to 2025, the descendants of those people uh, comprise about 135 million grandchildren and great-grandchildren. You are the author of this book about this ancestor of yours, and also another book called Slaves in the Family, in which you excavated the history of owning enslaved people um, at a plantation that your family owned generations ago. These are the kinds of family stories which I think a lot of people would want to hide. And you've made this choice to talk about it, to think about it, to track down the um, descendants of the enslaved people who your family owned. And then in the case of your new book, someone who was injured in a violent uprising, I guess is the right word, that LeCorn, your ancestor, was part of. Why are you writing these books? Like, it just seems like such a profound choice to me to have to think so hard about these evil deeds, this, like, dark history in your own family. Right. The book you mentioned, Slaves in the Family, told the story of my father's family in South Carolina, who were rice plantation owners. And this book, Life of a Klansman, tells a story from my mother's family in uh, New Orleans, this is like doing chemotherapy on the body politic to dig out the real stories of our tragic history and look at them up close is in a way a kind of medicine, a dangerous medicine I'm trying to apply to, to us as a society. And black folks and white folks are going through right now a period of reckoning I believe that talking about race violence in an honest and clear and open way is a part of a reckoning with our, our national story. Edward, let me build on that. If, if we look at so much of our life is, um, or at least those of us who aren't well-adjusted, is determined by what's happening in the nanosecond. So to the extent that people have had their eyes drawn to um, Portland or Kenosha, Wisconsin, um, it keeps us pressed against the present. But what it feels like in reading your work is that you are talking about the deep shale underneath which everybody stands. And we can only understand what's happening right in front of us if we understand the thing on which we stand, which is complicated and distant and multi-layered, but that unless you understand it, you don't understand the thing that you're fixated on day to day. Is that a fair way to think about it? You're right. We're fixated on the present. I think it's true that events in the distant past uh, leave their fingerprints on the lives that we live today and 
creates the conditions under which we make our life choices. Now that you've spent so much time looking at the clan of the post-Civil War era and thinking about white supremacy and its, and its manifestation then, do you think of the spasm of white supremacy that we're experiencing today, of public white supremacy that we're experiencing today? Does it make you think that this is a, this is a permanent state of America, that this is a, this is a unchangeable, irresistible, immovable force within white America, or that in fact it is, that it is subject to suppression and elimination. Because here we had, we've had in 18, you know, we had centuries of slavery. We had a flowering of white supremacy in the mid 18th century after the civil war, the late 19th, mid 19th century, the late 19th century, the 1920s, the 1960s, here we have it again today. I mean, is this just something we have to live with or can we root it out? Well, I think one way to understand race violence is that our country was founded on race violence. It was more important than religious liberty. It was more important than the free market. And it is part of the root and branch of our national life. Here's another metaphor. White supremacy is like an underground river. It runs beneath our national life for generations. And for, from time to time, it erupts in violent geysers in which many people are victimized. And then it goes back underground, but it doesn't go away. We're currently in a time when white supremacist uh, activity and violence is erupting. And I think that probably 300 people have died in the past five years in mass shootings that directly connect to white supremacist activity. Many of those shootings accompanied by manifestos written by the killers who explain themselves as acting on behalf of the white tribe. I think that this is something that can be fought and fought back and pushed back underground. But there is something um, disturbing about the reality, which is that white supremacy seems always to return. So you didn't have a diary or letters from Constant LaCorne to rely on. You were building a record from other kinds of documents that are less intimate. Um, but you must have, and you can feel this in the book, you must have tried to imagine yourself inside his head to really understand what he was doing. And I wonder what that was like, both because of the lack of personal testimony and also because he was doing this vile thing. You were being forced to imagine doing something that you find reprehensible. Mm -hmm. He was an ordinary person. Constant Le Corn was a, a ship carpenter, and he left no papers. And I think that possibly one in a thousand people actually leave a paper trail behind. What I did do was to closely study public records around him, the sacramental records, the uh, court records, the newspaper accounts, the diaries written by his neighbors. So he's, he's one of, of the masses. Ben Kingsley, who played Adolf Eichmann, said the reason he felt compelled to play that role was to show the bits of humanness to make the larger case that it could happen to anyone, that the evil inside of Eichmann was much more pervasive than in just one silo of a human. As you're trying to reconstruct and create an actual portrait of a person, 
does that require you to engage in sympathies, which I mean, this is a version of Emily's question, which are essentially repugnant. But unless you engage in them, you don't give the full picture and therefore readers won't recognize either themselves or humanness in this faraway character, which helps make people reflect on their lives today. Yes, I think the Q Klux Klan are in a strange way useful to us because we like to have some kind of alien carriers of evil whom we can displace our own aggressions onto and ask them to carry our sins. And that's what this character did. And yet, I did try to understand the personal life and the interior life of this rampaging costumed warrior for white supremacy. He was a very resentful man, a Confederate veteran who returned home to his life to find his livelihood shattered. He turned all of his uh, frustrations into an anger directed at black people. And tens of, he wasn't the only one doing this, of course, tens of thousands of white men joined the militia movements of their time. He was not some alien force who dropped out of the sky. Edward Ball is the author of Life of a Klansman, a family history of white supremacy, a really beautiful and interesting work about a single man's life in in New Orleans in the mid-19th century. Edward, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are having a crowler, that's what I had this weekend, a crowler, which was a growler, but in a can. So instead of a glass growler, I, this this brew pub in North Carolina sold me a can as a crowler. So when you're sitting on a porch having a crowler, Emily, what will you be chattering about? Oh, I'm obsessing about all the mechanics of the election and balloting. That's kind of all I do. Well, I do some other things, but that's a a main part of my week. And so this week, what I've been thinking about a lot is a conflict in Pennsylvania over how this election is going to work. The Democrats have sued to expand access to balloting. They want more time for people to return their absentee ballots. They want more secure drop-off boxes. And in particular, there's an issue arising in Pennsylvania and also Wisconsin and Michigan, which are swing states, about whether states can start counting the absentee ballots before Election Day. This is might seem like a small matter, but no, in fact, it is a major deal. So one issue here is if the states can open these envelopes early and start counting, that will make it much easier for them to actually have a reliable total on election night or close to it that includes the mail-in count. Thus, if the mail-in count skews in favor of one candidate or the other, that will be part of the initial total and reporting about who won the election or who's ahead in the count in those states. Another issue is if you can open the absentee ballots early and someone 
signature doesn't appear to match, if there's a technical glitch in the ballot, then you have time to get in touch with the voter and ask them to cure that defect. And that's a way of preventing a lot of ballots from getting thrown out because people filled them out a little bit wrong. You have the person's name right there. You can check with them. Like, did you, in fact, mean to return this ballot? Um, And can we count it? So these seem like really important um, changes to make in these state laws. We've never had a situation in these states where people have voted in huge numbers by mail before. And yet we are talking about three states with Republican legislatures that appear thus far unwilling to change the counting period for the mail-in ballots. So along with this question of making sure there are enough enough secure drop-off boxes in the state so people can return their ballot, even if they don't want to rely on the postal system, this question of early opening ballots and counting looms increasingly large to me. Because also the president has suggested any delay is proof of uh, election rigging. I mean, he's, he's already right. I mean, I don't want to give right. I mean, President Trump extraordinarily this week suggested that people should try voting twice to test um, the fraud protections. Of course, please do not do this at home. It is a crime to try to vote twice in every state, although our attorney general on television denied that he knew this was a crime. There's a kind of extraordinary, just like weird gaslighting going on um, from the top of the federal government. And so I don't want to give too much stock in preventing these fraud claims because I kind of feel they're going to rise anyway. Like if the states open the absentee ballots early, then people are who want to cry fraud are going to say that's the problem. But it does just seem from the point of view of an orderly, secure election that if we could count these ballots earlier, it's the same counting process whenever it happens. That could be really helpful. John, what is your chatter? I had a series of um, truly depressing chatters and then, but I just, I couldn't do it. So I am going to chatter about an article that I enjoyed reading from Elizabeth Bernstein, who wrote uh, a piece for the Wall Street Journal called The One Thing You Can Control Right Now Yourself. So this is, of course, a longtime uh, source of interest for me as someone who's constantly trying to master their unmasterable impulses. And in the course of this uh, piece, which gives lots of helpful suggestions about how to master yourself in an age where so much is out of your control, the the conceit of the piece is we live in in a time where so much seems out of our control, so control the one thing you can. In it, one of the things they suggest is to essentially talk about yourself in the third person. And it, it, um, it uh, references a study with the title of Self-Talk as a Regulatory Mechanism. How you do it matters. And it gives it a wonderful lead of this research paper is LeBron James talking about his decision in the summer of 2010 about where he was going to play basketball. And as he's talking about it, he switches in and out of talking about himself in the third person. And they suggest that it is... Um, actually healthy for us to do this. So, you know, when politicians are constantly talking about themselves in the third person, this used to be something that we derided, and maybe justifiably so, because it's also perhaps a sign of uh, megalomaniacal behavior, or at least incipient megalomaniacal behavior. But in the own, in the quietude of your own house, the idea basically is if you refer to yourself in the third person, it gives you a sufficient distance to get out of the 
the doom loop that you get in when you're when you live too much interiorly in your head. And that by thinking of yourself as an outside person, you can recognize perhaps some of the pitfalls of your impulses. Anyway, whether it works or not, um, I thought it was a fascinating um, piece. So I encourage everybody to go read it. So one of my own habits, uh, which has been pointed out to me by anyone who's ever worked in an office with me or shared space with me for any amount of time is that I constantly talk to myself as plots, like, come on plots. And, and sometimes and yell and curse at yourself. And sometimes yell plots. and curse at myself and exhort, exhort myself as plots. Is it, but I assume that everyone's internal dialogue, like it, like Emily, when you're mad at yourself, you're not like, I'm so mad at me. It's I don't like, have that thing at all that you're doing, except when I play tennis. And actually, I recently looked back again at the inner game of tennis, the Bible of trying to heal all one's mental deficiencies on the tennis court, of which I have so many. And it talks about this as a problem. They're like, do not base, I think, I, it was a little ambiguous, but I took from it like, do not yell Emily at yourself when you make a mistake. The, the author of the inner game of tennis is like, who are you castigating? Like, why are you creating this bifurcated Itself. Like, that's not a good idea. You want to, like, feel good about yourself, not yell at yourself. So, I don't know. Does it give you relief and comfort to yell plots during work? Like, I don't do that ever. I, it's a way, I don't, it is sort of my external superego. It's usually to exhort me to do something. It's, it's always, come on, plots, come on, plotsy. It's more like, get, get up, stop lazing around, or move on to the next task, or get this task right. And I don't know if it's if that's what you're talking about, John, or if it's something you're, what you're referring to as something else. Well, it, 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 it is, I think, a branch of what you're talking about, although it seems in the context in which, and this is based just on the reading of this article and the, and the uh, uh, reading the top of the study, um, it, that it's a little more gentle than the way in which you do it. That it's, in other words, what, what you're saying does seem to have a, a purpose and use, but what you're, but, but when you do it, it sounds like you're, I mean, you're using a standard to basically elevate your game. This is um, this is using a standard to get you out of a decline. You know, mm-hmm. like yours, it feels like you're you're kind of um, inert and you're using it to push you. The way it's written about in this study, it feels like you're going in the other direction. You're in decline, and this kind of rescues you from that. Mm-hmm. All right, we'll try it. I want to chatter about this wonderful new translation of Beowulf. It's, uh, it's a translation um, by Maria Devana Headley, who is a novelist who wrote a novel, which I have not read, which is a novelized, um, it's a novel told from the perspective of Grendel's mother. Grendel's a monster in Beowulf who's killed by Beowulf, and then Grendel's mother is also killed by Beowulf. This is a sort of feminist translation of Beowulf, Although I, what I would say is that it's certainly a feminist translation of Beowulf, and it's an incredibly readable translation of Beowulf, but mostly it is a fucking energetic translation of Beowulf. It is so alive and so fun and very – It's I love the Seamus Heaney translation of Beowulf. It's, one of, it's you know, like the only poem I've ever read practically, but I'm going to just read just to give you a sense about what this is like because it's so vivid. Uh, so this is Beowulf kind of introducing himself to King Rothgar, the king he's come to help out because Rothgar's being plagued by the monster. 
Every elder knew I was the man for you and blessed my quest, King Rothgar, because where I'm from, I'm the strongest and the boldest and the bravest and the best. Yes, I mean, I may have bathed in the blood of beasts, netted five foul ogres at once, smashed my way into a troll den and come out swinging, gone skinny dipping in a sleeping sea and made sashimi of some sea monsters. Anyone who fucks with the Geats, bro, they have to fuck with me. <laughs> oh, the I, modern era. It's awesome. It is so awesome. And, you know, I, I, I don't know the old English on which it's based, so I have no idea how close to the truth it is or how, how accurate translation is, but I don't think that matters. The point is to kind of convey some sense of the force and vitality of the poem. And, oh, it's awesome. So check it out. Does it leave intact uh, our favorite line? Yeah. That was that one was, good king. That was one good king. It does. <laughs> it does. So, but actually one of the things is, is she, so she ma- imagines it as um, what there's this, so there's a, a, a word that is introduces the poem, which Heaney translates as so. So it's yeah. like, so. Yeah. And she, she translated as, she translates it as bro. Because it's like she imagines this whole thing as like a story, like the bros are telling to each other. It's like this huh. sort of one-upping dude dudesmanship, and it's like bro. And so that when whenever that so appears, uh, it's it's bro. But that was one that was one good king is all over the place. Yeah, it's great. Listeners, you have sent us excellent chatters, and I want to point you to one that came from Green Neck at Green Neck which is a link to a story in Discover Magazine, which ancient city is considered the oldest in the world. And it's just, it's not a long story. It's kind of about when did cities develop and why did they develop and what makes a city a city? And is it just having a bunch of people? Is it the sort of uh, physical structure of it? Is it its relationship to its exterior, the lands around it? Is it a political construction? Is it a geographic construction? Is it is it just a demographic and population construction? Um, and so it's a nice little pricey on that on that. So check it check it out. That's our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is editorial director. June Thomas is managing producer, and Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Please follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest, and please do come to our live show Wednesday, September 16th at 7 p.m. Eastern. Go to slate.com slash live for more info. We're doing that in partnership with the Texas Tribune Wednesday, September 16th at 7 p.m. Eastern. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? How are you doing? What's going on? So one one of you guys, I think maybe maybe it's you, Emily, proposed this as our Slate Plus question. Looking back in 30 years, will this election have been the most important of our lifetime or not? And obviously, there's a little bit of uh, whimsy and speculation here because the election hasn't even happened yet. We don't even know what the result is. Who the hell knows? So it's kind of crazy to to play. But that's the point of Slate Plus is to float the crazy to indulge in the wild speculation. Um, so, Emily, I, I think this was you. Do you want to? Do you want to start? Yeah, us out? this was my idea. It, this idea actually comes from my son Simon, and we posed it as a poll on Twitter. And I think something upwards of eighty percent of people said yes. 
And then we asked, do you think now that this election is the most important? And not surprisingly, um, an even greater number of people or a fraction of people said yes. So I guess what I like about this question is at least asked you to imagine that we're um, fixating too much on the now and that maybe either way, things will kind of even out over time. You don't know, obviously, who's going to win in 2024, what the country's longer trajectory will be. But I also felt like that poll suggested that people do feel like there's this existential choice and that there's a big difference between one term of a very disruptive president who is doing so much to foment discord and um, propagate disinformation, as we've been talking about, and two terms. Like, I get stuck on what it would mean for America to make this choice again, and and then also the ways in which uh, America's um, stature in the world, its actual uh, quality of life, right, our quality of life has so much suffered because of coronavirus. And I guess I just feel like Almost anyone else would have managed the crisis differently, um, would have cared a lot about presenting a, uh, an image and a reality of competence. And what's happened in the last six months is we've seen what it means to have a president like that when we have a true, true crisis. The chances that we'll have four more years without another crisis seem low, plus we're not done with this crisis yet. And of course, it's also spawned an economic crisis. So for all these reasons, I sort of feel like we will look back in 30 years and see this as a major turning point. Unless you decide that you say, unless you decide that 2016 was the most important election, that that it, um, I mean, with 180, you know, well on the way to 190 and above dead, um, it will soon be known by somebody who's smart and goes through the history, the delta between what a uh, comp, you know, a, a, a traditional president presidential national response to COVID-19 and the one that that we've had, what that result is. Um, The economic devastation is immediate, but it is also now long lasting. The Kansas City Fed issued a paper this week that outlines the many years economic damage done by COVID-19. And some of that couldn't have been avoided no matter who was president, but it, it some portion of it was also the result of tardy uh, response from the executive branch. Um, and so, and then as you, but then again, as you say, Emily, we have these three ongoing national problems, the election itself and whether America can still carry out a peaceful transi- transition of power or a peaceful maintenance of power, if it's a re-election, but that could be a fourth um, national crisis that the next president has to manage, the fallout after that. And uh, so that's four crises the next president's going to have to handle, and presumably the quality with which they handle those crises will, will be significant. And then as you point out, as I spend so much time writing about, there's going to be another surprise, because that's what happens. They come. They happen. And so if the next president's going to basically deal with everything we've got now, plus two more crises, the election fallout crisis and then the one we haven't figured out, then maybe this is the most important election. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I find it so hard to say. I think the I think what Trump has done, there's a huge percentage of Americans who fundamentally don't believe in politics, don't believe politics works, don't trust it, are willing to jettison 
the norms, the institutions, the structures that we have. And Trump has been an accelerant at the highest degree, an accelerant. He's just made that so much worse so quickly. I think had Hillary Clinton been elected, she would have had a terrible time as president. I think the Republicans and I think the Republican Party would have been awful to her and she probably would have been a one-term president and followed by somebody who was a, a very conservative president but i don't think it would have ha- been somebody of the same th- the same destructive tendencies that they're the other people who 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 especially once trump had been defeated the other people who would have likely risen their place would have been bog standard conservative senators and governors who would have been very conservative but would not have been would not have massacred institutions and norms and undermined them in the way that trump is so set on doing i think the fact that trump has done this has shown that it's doable has shown that it's possible has shown that it's a strategy that appeals to a huge percentage of republican voters that that opening of that Pandora's box, opening of that box is more damaging than the continuance of it. Not that I think that a second four-year term of Trump would be absolutely catastrophic for all the reasons that you say, Emily. Um, I think we've already missed, we already missed our chance. We've already, we've already, we've already exposed America to the poison and the poison is in our system and there's no, no getting it out. And that was what we did in 2016. So how do we factor in, if it's 2050, the way in which America has changed? Because in 2050, right, we're going to have majority people of color. GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.